All right, stop me if you've heard this before. On a cold winter night in Florida, a sudden sweeping freeze drove down the state, bringing freezing temperatures down to regions of Florida that hadn't seen frost or snow to that degree in years. The freeze was shocking for the residents of Florida, but no one more so than the citrus growers of our state. Overnight, scores of crops died, oranges dead in the groves, frost flecking across their hardened rinds. The economy of Florida hit a sudden standstill, and for a moment, the state had to reckon with what exactly to do next. If you had to guess, what year do you think I'm talking about? If you listen to this show enough, you're probably thinking of an event that I have talked about at length repeatedly through the years, an event that I have previously called the defining event in Florida history. That would be the Great Freeze, a pair of sudden winter frosts that struck in December of 1894 and February of 1895. These two freezes fundamentally reshaped the state of Florida, wiping towns off the map, changing the livelihoods of whole communities, and forcing Florida to face the possible unsustainability of their signature crop. If citrus could die so suddenly and almost without warning, then how could anyone really rely on it? Some communities changed their crops altogether, but the citrus industry found new ways to survive, adapting growing habits and even the locations of the groves themselves, but we'll get to that in a moment. The problem for Florida citrus growers is that no matter what they did or how successful their crops were or where they were grown, the random effects of Florida's weather would come again. But after the Great Freeze of 1895, the citrus industry would try their very best to not be caught unprepared again. In the modern age of the 20th century, the growers of Florida would rally not just to share tips on how to survive in Florida's ever-changing ecosystem, but also to allow economic support if or when the freezes came again. When the freeze hit, this time, they'd be ready. Well, another freeze would come, and another, and another, and one, very significantly, was coupled with an event in Florida history we've talked about before. And one of the things I find when I write about history, when I, when I read these things, is you don't realize that these events find themselves intersecting. Because I am going to talk to you today about an event that we have talked about before on this show. But interestingly, another event happened in 1977 that left a mark on Florida's citrus industry. But I, I really thought about this story because I got a chance to talk about the Great Freeze not too long ago to an audience, to a group called the Landscape Inspectors Association of Florida, a group of professionals in the green industry who do training, certification, and resource sharing when it comes to the field of landscaping. They work in conservation and environmental protection in a number of ways, and I was very grateful to give a keynote speech to them last month. I drove down to South Florida, and I woke up bright and early with a speech ready to go about some of my favorite bits of Florida's environmental history. Naturally, I talked about Henry Flagler and the unique origins of Florida's shape, but I closed with that same story, my favorite Florida story, the one I've talked about over and over again, The Great Freeze. I read quotes from newspapers at the time, showed pictures of the dead citrus on the ground, and cited numbers about the total loss for the state, the economic impact, which was massive. And as I was talking to these landscaping professionals, these people who work in outdoor spaces every day, I realized that I was telling them basically a horror story. All of these lovely people who just had a cup of coffee and some breakfast and were sitting on a normal day, getting ready to have a nice seminar with their fellow peers and talk about their industry. I showed up to start their day with the principle of like, hey, I'm here to tell some fun stories. And I was like, here is an event that so randomly and completely destroyed the economy. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. I'm telling you a story that is your 
absolute worst nightmare. For me, it's just a great story of Florida resilience, but for you, this is worst case scenario. In a state history filled with freak ecological phenomena, from hurricanes to great freezes, these are the stories that haunt professionals in the green industry. I stated this out loud to them, I, I suddenly realized, I was like, I'm, I'm telling you terrible stories. One woman near the front literally goes, yeah. <laughs> She was like, yeah, no kidding, man. You're telling me the worst version of this. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. I, I didn't, I, I was kind of affecting your morning. I apologize. I suddenly realized that the smiling faces in the crowd had taken on a slight anxiety in their eyes. Why is this guy telling us about how bad it could get? How randomly great freeze, economic collapse, total chaos. Thanks for the story, buddy. I, I told them about this story, however, because it involves one of my favorite parts of, of Florida history. Citrus just survives. We grew new kinds of citrus after that in new locations, in new ways. We switched to different crops and we still sell citrus from our land to this very day. Fresh Florida oranges, they never vanished. So as I left Miami after my speech, leaving the friendly landscapers to enjoy the rest of their seminar, I thought about the Great Freeze, as I always do. And I thought if I had a little more time and had I thought of it, I would have told them about the things that happened next. Because I've told you about the Great Freeze so many times in the last five years, but we never really talked about the years that followed. Because in the decades after the Great Freeze of 1895, more threats came to Florida's citrus industry, but never perhaps more then in a very different year, a year with very different ramifications, you heard me say it a few minutes ago, 1977. My antique this episode is from that very same year. It's a bumper sticker. Let me get it for you. It's right here. It's yellow with oranges and a glass of orange juice on the left side and black lettering. It reads, break one nine, it's OJ time. A relic from a very important year in our history, 1977, the year without citrus. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the year without citrus, 1977. The day it snowed in Miami, the nationwide shock of that sudden chill, the boycotts and politics as a one-two punch, and the forgotten bumper sticker on my desk. This is our season all about the antiques that unlock forgotten bits of Florida history. Two weeks ago, we dove into postcards, thrift malls, and a cookbook with our friend Gabrielle Khaleesi. And this week, as we roam the aisles of the Wait 5 Minutes Antique Store, we find our flashy yellow bumper sticker right here. So let's let it lead us. Let's go to 1977 when this bumper sticker was printed. The year without citrus. It was cold in January of 1977, and not our typical Florida cold. Not like 50 degrees and the park has come out. No, it was well below freezing. And it snowed. On January 18th, a Tuesday, dawn came to Florida as snow flurries fell on the beach. One newspaper said, quote, Alaska was warmer than parts of Florida, end quote. Now that is cold. Quote, Floridians as far south as West Palm Beach were greeted by snow when they awoke this morning as a cold front dropped temperatures to 10 degrees in parts of North Florida and the 30s in South Florida. End quote. That's from the Tallahassee Democrat from the following day, the 19th, the Wednesday. They go on to say, quote, it was the furthest south in Florida that snow had been reported since the Weather Bureau began keeping records. End quote. If you were alive in 1977, you likely remember that day. If you have relatives who were here that day, ask them about it. Perhaps my greatest find in my research about the snow in 1977, one that I could not 
let this episode go by without telling you was a report from the Palm Beach Post from January 20th, 1977, two days after the snow. It included a series of interviews from children at Green Acres Elementary School, kindergartners, five and six-year-olds. Here's what their assessment was of the snow. One child named Diana Polisena said, quote, My friend and I told two people it was snowing, but they already knew it, end quote. One girl named Sarah Rose said, quote, My mama woke me up and told me it was snowing. I went back to sleep, end quote. Sarah Rose, unimpressed. One child, whose name was Skeeter Slattery, which is just not the sort of names you get anymore. We've, we've lost the art of truly incredible names like Skeeter Slattery. Skeeter said, quote, There was snow on my dad's car this morning, and I ate it all up. You know what? A piece of snow blew right in my mouth. I woke up one of the neighborhoods. They wasn't mad at me. We just wanted to show them they had snow on their picnic table. When it snows worser at my house, I'll make a snowman. End quote. Skeeter, I think, was making the best of the situation. Perhaps the most insightful quote is from Melvin Horn, who said, quote, It's just squishy. It's just good to squish. I'd rather stay home and play with my toys. End quote. The snow, for all of its rarity in the winter in Florida, was just an inconvenience for some kindergartners in 1977. But for all the joy that the students had in reveling in the wonders of this strange weather, the consequences made themselves known immediately, especially in our agriculture. Unlike the freeze in 1895, it was unclear the impacts of the freeze immediately. The Tallahassee Democrats said, quote, Although citrus growers say it will take two weeks to learn the true extent of crop damage, a spokesman for Florida Citrus Mutual said Tuesday's loss was estimated at 15%, end quote. And it wasn't just the citrus growers that were impacted. Growers all over the state feared the freeze. One industry affected, interestingly, was the flower industry, which worried that the freeze would impact the flower growth necessary for Valentine's Day, which was less than a month away. Tomatoes, as well, were affected by the freeze, and the damage to the crops across the state captured national attention. We are part of the greater agricultural ecosystem, so what happens when Florida's crops aren't part of the mix? We'd faced this challenge before, a few times before, over and over. We were ready for it this time, right? Well, let's go back and, and talk about that, because in 1895, it wasn't the first freeze Florida had ever seen. It was certainly the worst. But what followed between 1897 and 1977, a lot changed. And it's interesting because we still felt the impacts of the freeze in 1977, only in a different way. So let's go back to 1895. In the Great Freeze in Orange County alone, 90% of citrus trees died. In Lake County, 99% of the trees dead in a blink. The entire region of groves around the St. John's River was, quote, largely abandoned, end quote. A hundred million dollars of crops lost, literally, overnight. I've said it so many times, but I need you to understand how severe this was. Look up any list of ghost towns in Florida. An extraordinarily high percentage of those lost ghost towns were because of the Great Freeze. People just left. And it's not like there weren't plans to deal with the possibility of the freeze. There was a way for people to be warned that the freeze was coming, but it, it just didn't work. The U.S. Weather Service had a specific plan to warn Jacksonville if a winter blast was heading our way. A train whistle was meant to be the harbinger of cold weather, and growers would go about protecting their trees as best they could once they heard that train whistle coming. But it wasn't enough, and the freeze wrecked everything. It took a decade, over a decade to recover, but somehow it did recover. 
Quote, by 1909, production had returned to the 1894 level. End quote. So 15 years, a remarkable feat. A decade into the new century, what was left of the citrus industry bounced back. Part of how they were able to do that was because, frankly, they moved. A lot of the growers moved further south with less production up in North Florida and the Panhandle and more production in Central Florida and most notably, new production in South Florida. As far as I can tell, there wasn't a lot of growing going on in Miami and South Florida and West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale. That seemed to be a development after the Great Freeze in order to compensate for the fact that North Florida just wasn't viable. So we needed to go where it was consistently warmer down towards Miami where less citrus was grown than up north, more groves popped up in the early years of the 20th century. The Indian River Lagoon, which became the most prolific growing area in the 20th century, surged into the conversation with the watershed becoming the most iconic brand for citrus growing. Indian River fruit is still essential to the industry and that was because of the waters coming from the Indian River Lagoon further south than where citrus had been growing before. Over a decade and a half, things recovered. Not fully, but good enough to prepare for the storms they'd soon have to weather. And there would be storms. On the bottom of this bumper sticker, there is tiny lettering. In our previous episode on the postcards, I noticed some tiny lettering that, that unlocked a little bit more of the history. This bumper sticker is the very same. Here in the bottom, it says, Florida Department of Citrus, 1977. The Florida Department of Citrus. That is a very important part of the citrus industry here in Florida. Their website recounts the trials and tribulations of the 20th century in citrus in Florida. Scientific research on how to grow and protect citrus became a standard. Diseases would occasionally appear, some easily snuffed out from the citrus crop. Development would advance the industry, including the creation of citrus concentrate. In the 1920s, however, a triple threat hit the industry. A freeze in 1927, a hurricane in 1928, and then in 1929, quote, the first Mediterranean fruit fly infestation occurred, affecting 75% of Florida's citrus trees, end quote. The pest was destroyed, the freeze and the hurricane were weathered, and the industry survived. We're gonna have to do a whole separate episode about 1927, 1928, 1929, because that is insane. But how much could the industry stand? How much could it survive? In 1957, another freeze. In 1960, another hurricane. But still, citrus survived. In 1968, however, that is where we get introduced to the Florida Department of Citrus, the people who created this bumper sticker. The Florida Department of Citrus was formed in 1968 and became a governmental branch to help regulate and support this crucial part of the agriculture. But the Florida Department of Citrus's website which goes thoroughly through Florida citrus history, they skip 1977. Why would that be? There was snow in Miami, of course, but why would they skip the history in 1977? Well, I don't mean to point fingers, and surely there's many reasons, perhaps, why 1977 is not on their timeline, but I believe that maybe there's a bit of a complicated history to what happened in citrus's impact on our culture in 1977. That's because in 1977... Citrus was boycotted. We'll get there in a second. Let's go back to the freeze of 1977. In a newspaper that came from across the country, Bakersfield, California, somewhere in South Central California, one writer was assessing the potential nationwide ramifications of the freeze in Florida. With the citrus and vegetable crop from our Sunshine State in disarray, California growers would soon see higher prices and potentially more profit, though consumers would suffer from that increased price. 
Quote, fresh market orange price in California has climbed about $1 per carton since the freeze, end quote. Tomatoes and bell peppers as well were increasing in price. It's that old adage, of course, supply and demand. Well, with supply low and demand the same, the prices naturally responded. Florida, they asserted, provided much of the agricultural crop at this time. Quote, Florida grows half the winter cabbage, half the celery, and essentially all of the U.S. winter production of tomatoes, snap beans, sweet corn, and bell peppers, end quote. Additionally, Texas experienced extensive rain during the harvest season that year, leading to lower output in the Longhorn State. Everyone, it seemed, was waiting. What would Florida's loss be? 1895 was a long time ago now, but caution was warranted. How bad was this about to be? The numbers spoke for themselves. Somewhere between 30 and 35% of fruit on the trees were lost. That's about 50 to 60 million boxes of fruit. With Florida being the supplier of, quote, more than 75% of the nation's citrus supply, end quote, the impact was felt. Remarkably, the increased price due to the limited supply actually made up somewhat for the loss of revenue. So we lose money because we lost a bunch of trees, right? But we gained some money back because the price of citrus went up to meet the demand, right? Because the supply was so low. So it kind of balances itself out, which is a complicated thing. But citrus still found a way to not lose a tremendous amount of money. That, that's just how things had changed in the last 80 years. 80 years ago, this sort of thing bankrupted towns. It, it turned them into ghost towns. But now, with this new system of the government looking out for citrus and the citrus growers supporting one another, they found a way for this to not be a devastating loss, despite the fact that 50 to 60 million boxes of fruit were gone. The trees themselves did not experience extensive damage. That's the most important part. They still got the fruit out and the trees made it through the winter. What I find remarkable about this and, and the reason it's so important to me and the reason I, I love that this bumper sticker allowed me into this chapter in history is that how did we do this? In 1895, when everything looked extremely dire for our growers, they were met with a lot of questions. Can we keep growing citrus? Can we keep growing our citrus here? What can we do to prevent this from happening again? On top of everything, they moved south, away from places more likely to freeze. They grew different varieties and hybrids of citrus. What did Mother Nature do? She said, you can't escape me. And she kept sending hurricanes and freezes and eventually snow to Miami, and yet Mother Nature, fickle and cruel as she can be, could not take out citrus. That was not the right hook that the citrus industry soon faced, no. Mother Nature provided the left hook, the one punch. The number two punch, however, well, that came from human beings. Mother Nature had nothing to do with it. Our bumper sticker. It was made by the Florida Department of Citrus, right? Well, it was doing what the citrus industry always did. It was promoting itself. The labels on the sides of citrus crates with their colorful designs, they were meant to capture the eye with dazzling detail. Crates of oranges were sent to cold states during the holidays, gifts meant to remind you that there was a sunshiny place away from your cold winter home. This bumper sticker in my hand was part of that very same effort, meant clearly to appeal to truck drivers, or perhaps drivers on the road going on road trips, but I believe specifically because of the break 1-9, it's them trying to appeal to truck drivers, or even have truck drivers have it on the back of their car. So what's interesting about this bumper sticker is that I can't find evidence of it 
anywhere on the internet. I have searched every version of describing it, looking up similar pictures of it, typing in the words for it. I can't seem to find another person that has or has even heard of this bumper sticker. So if you know someone who has this bumper sticker, break one nine, it's OJ time. If you've heard of it, please send me an email. I seem to be the only copy of it in the world is sitting on my desk, but I had to, of course, look into what it means. The intention is clear. It's referencing a common truck driver sentiment, the classic phrase. If you are acting like a truck driver, what's the first thing you would say? Breaker 1-9, whatever, right? Well, what does that mean? Let's go on a tangent with me for a moment, would you mind? A little truck driver history. Truck drivers who haul giant 18-wheelers across this country, they use a specific type of radio communication, one that I've always been fascinated by, CB radio. CB literally means citizen's band. That means that it's a radio frequency that is free to use by the public. So CB radios exist on that public radio frequency, and they serve as a way to communicate between other trucks. These have been in use and still are used to help other drivers on the road, whether that's tips on gas prices or hazards on the road or best routes, anything to help the community of other drivers on the road. Well, there's all sorts of CB lingo that is used, and the one most people know is the phrase Breaker 1-9. That is because on Citizens Ban, channel 19, or 1-9, is specifically for truckers. So if you want to cut in with something to say on CB, you say Break 1-9 or Breaker 1-9, as in to say, hey, sorry to interrupt everybody currently talking on channel 19, but I'd like to say something. It's, it's literally a way to kind of butt in to the channel. Shorthand, say Breaker 1-9. And that is your truck driver history lesson. This bumper sticker knowingly references this term that clearly everyone knows and then suggests that it is indeed time for a glass of orange juice. And also, it's a it's a decent rhyme, right? Break one nine, it's OJ time. I bet someone was really happy in the marketing department when they figured out that pun and they were like, we can sell it to truckers. Anyway, the Florida Department of Citrus, which is overseen by the Florida Citrus Commission, they were marketing citrus everywhere. They were trying to get it in people's homes across the country, in drivers crisscrossing the United States. They were trying to get it in front of everybody's eyes. And they had a spokesperson that they hired in 1969, a popular singer named Anita Bryant. Come to the Florida Sunshine Tree. Again, stop me if you've heard this before. We've talked about Anita Bryant a lot on this show. She was a singer turned spokeswoman turned political activist, if that's the term you want to say. She sang songs about the importance of orange juice alongside a mascot designed by Disney animators named Orange Bird. This is my little friend, Orange Bird. He's not a talking bird. He's a thinking bird. Orange. Orange Bird today is just a friendly face, no further connection remaining to Anita Bryant, and that is probably for the benefit of Orange Bird. If you've never heard the history of Anita Bryant, I recommend our full episode on Orange Bird or our episode about Don't Say Gay, which goes in-depth on Anita's dangerous rhetoric that she was using in the 1970s, because Anita, in 1977, started a fervent anti-gay movement in Miami and the country at large. Dade County had just made it so that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation was prohibited. This meant that gay residents in the county could work anywhere, and Anita began promoting the homophobic rhetoric that this would be dangerous for children, especially if a gay person got a job in a school, which is the same language that is being used by supporters of the Don't Say Gay Bill today. 
Again, I implore you to listen to these episodes if you haven't, we go so much further in depth on it. What you need to know is this. Anita started fighting the anti-discrimination ordinance, the ordinance was eventually repealed, and Anita believed that she found victory. But at the same time as the ordinance was being challenged, gay rights advocates across the country were more than willing to fight back. Because Anita was cashing checks from the Florida Citrus Commission, so they decided to hit her where it hurt. Across the country, gay rights advocates, including the hugely important Harvey Milk, suggested boycotting all citrus products from Florida. What followed was a series of, frankly, hilarious anti-citrus acts that genuinely, sincerely impacted Florida's citrus industry. Over the course of the boycott, I have seen one source that says sales of orange juice dropped 25%. I have seen another source that said only 10%, and I've even seen Anita Bryant say that sales of orange juice and oranges went up during the boycott. It's hard to really tell for certain, but you will see there were ramifications for this boycott no matter what. Right from the beginning, those leading the boycotts made it clear that the target wasn't just Anita Bryant herself, but specifically her connection to Florida Citrus. For example, Anita's campaign prominently featured the slogan, Breakfast without orange juice is like a day without sunshine. And remember, breakfast without orange juice is like a day without sunshine. Protesters began mocking this slogan, saying, A day without human rights is like a day without sunshine. I even found an ad that said that you should instead be buying California orange juice or California oranges. There's this very ominous looking orange juice ad that I've seen. It's 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 an orange that looks like a, a glowing sun and it says California around it. But underneath it says Florida orange juice is hazardous to your existence. It's, it's hardcore rhetoric to fight what Anita Bryant was doing, not just saying Florida orange juice, we should stop it because Anita Bryant is a part of it, but you're buying orange juice that's eventually bleeding money to Anita Bryant, who is then going on this anti-gay crusade. So if you're buying Florida orange juice, in effect, you are supporting Anita Bryant's cause. So it was rhetoric, but it was intense and it was specific and it wasn't just language. They had to actually do boycotts and they did. To protest the movement required specific efforts, and organizers, especially those in San Francisco following Harvey Milk's move, had plans. It wasn't just a boycott. It soon became known as a gay-cot, which, not the smoothest portmanteau, but you get what they were going for. They were telling you to not buy orange juice, but also a lot of bars in San Francisco and California and even some bars across the country started putting this boycott into effect because orange juice is an essential mixer for cocktails, of course. Screwdrivers, tequila sunrises, they needed orange juice. Well, to support the gay cot, gay bars and some non-gay bars would make the same drinks, but they would make them with apple juice instead of orange juice. A screwdriver, which is usually just made with orange juice and vodka, instead, if it would be made with apple juice and vodka, they called that, no joke, the Anita Bryant drink. <laughs> Some bars would make you a cocktail with orange juice, but only if you brought your own oranges or even orange juice that came from California specifically. You had to bring a bottle from California. No Florida orange juice. Florida was blacklisted. And outside of bars, removing Florida orange juice from the breakfast lineup was part of the plan as well, with advocates pushing for a glass of milk or pineapple juice to start your day instead of OJ. It was small movements, but it started to mount up. 
Harvey Milk himself wrote in the Bay Area Reporter, quote, Some say that one can of OJ won't make a difference. Before Bryant becomes more powerful, remember that your one can adds up to millions of one cans throughout the nation. The only way to stop this bigot is to have a fully effective economic boycott, end quote. They were not messing around. But the protesters were up against a Goliath, and despite the very public protesting and the very clever marketing that they were doing to support the boycott, Anita Bryant still got the anti-discrimination ordinance overturned. Now, there are lots of very intense posters and t-shirts. Obviously, I've shared one on the show's Instagram a few times. It says, Anita Bryant sucks oranges. There was lots of this anti-Anita Bryant, anti-orange jokes, t-shirts, pins, ways to spread the message, but Anita Bryant still got her anti-discrimination ordinance overturned. But it was at cost to her own career. By the end of 1978, Anita Bryant was out of a job. The Florida Citrus Commission fired her, and it seemed that no one in any part of film and television were interested in hiring her at all. She had thoroughly decimated her reputation in the American consciousness. The public pressure was too much. The commission bowed. And though the boycott didn't terribly damage the citrus industry at large, the public scrutiny on top of the loss from the freezes left the oranges in an unusual spot. At the beginning of the year, snow fell on the trees, and by the end of it, oranges were being equated with hatred and bigotry. With Anita gone and warmer weather on the horizon, 1977 was a year to forget. Citrus still had a place, and somehow, with this unbelievable one-two punch, Citrus did the remarkable thing that it always does. Despite all the loss, the year without citrus, as I dubbed it, wasn't that much different from the loss of acreage in the previous year. Despite two remarkable things occurring, despite snow in Miami and a wave of political conflict, troubles both natural and man-made, citrus proved itself resilient, as always. Sure, there was loss from the year before, but it was the same loss from the year before that. I find myself writing about citrus often. How can I not? I find that every chapter ends the same way. And every chapter that I'll tell you in the future will end the same way. At least I hope it does. There will never truly be a year without citrus so long as there are bumper stickers reminding you about OJ and as long as the trees find a way to weather the frost. Citrus somehow will survive. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me, helps the show grow, and lets me know what you enjoy about the show. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod. I will be posting a picture of this bumper sticker and some of those incredible anti-Florida citrus ads that I discovered during the research. So go check those out and send me an email if you would like to at WFMPod at gmail.com. If you have one of these bumper stickers or any of that anti-Anita Bryant merch, I would love to see it. So send me an email, WFMPod at gmail.com. Thank you. I do not own the rights to the audio that you heard. That is from Anita Bryant singing. I wanted you to hear that clip. I've included a link to the YouTube page. You can watch the full commercial and see Anita Bryant and Orange Bird doing their thing before everything fell apart. I would also like to give a shout out to some resources that I used in the research of this episode. The big one is from MyRecipes.com. Their research was incredible. It's from an article called The Orange Juice Boycott That Changed America. It's written by John Birdsall. It's from February of 2018. I'll include a link in the episode description. Go give that a read. He includes even more detail, and it is just uh, an incredible history that somehow I feel like we will talk about again very soon. <laughs>
All the music used in this episode, except for the music in that Anita Bryant clip, was originally composed. All right, that is it for me today, but that is not it for me this week. I've got a very special episode coming out for you on Thursday, a little mini episode to tell you about Florida's own breed of turkey. Yes, we have one. I'll tell you all about it and the guy who named it couple decades ago. It's a great story, and I hope you have a very happy holiday week and a very happy holiday weekend. I will see you on Thursday for a mini episode, and then next Monday we return to the Orange County Regional History Center and talk about the origins of my hometown of Orlando. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, have a very happy holiday week, drink more water, and go gator and muddy the water. See you on Thursday.